so <coughs> my favorite thing to do is interrupt good conversations. I love that. <coughs> it's my calling in life, apparently, is to get in the middle of other people having a really good time and tell them, no, you have to pay attention to me because I'm way more important than your good conversation. Well, I don't know about that, but it's good to have the conversations, too. <coughs> so here's <coughs> here is our, our topic for tonight. Um, this is, and, and first of all, I appreciate you all showing up. I never know who's coming. I never know <laughs> this is, you know, going to play out. Um, and the conversations are always good. And I hope this will be conversation. Um, this is actually only really going to work and be interesting if, if you play along. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd be Absolutely. grateful if you if you play along. <coughs> Otherwise, I'll be. Online as well. Yes, ideally, hopefully. <coughs> Excuse me, my throat is giving me trouble. We have people online and we have this being recorded so that people can access it as, you know, asynchronous content, as they say, um, and, and, you know, find that on the podcast or whatever later on. So your insights will be available for <laughs> other people to experience here in perpetuity. No, no dumb things. No, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. So, like I say, we've got creeds and covenants tonight. Um, and, and, I mean, this, in a sense, you know, you can think of this content as, well, what do we believe as Christians? And that certainly is true. But I, I think it's just as important or maybe more important to think about how we believe as, as followers of Jesus. We'll see where that goes here in a minute. And maybe not to put too um, heavy a burden on this, I guess, but I, I think actually what we're talking about tonight is even way deeper than, you know, what is the faith statement of the church? It's where do we put our allegiance? I mean, there are lots of different places you can put your allegiance, right? And I, I would say, I don't, I can't prove this, but I think it's true that we kind of all put our allegiance someplace. Maybe it's implicit, maybe it's explicit, but you know, something is guiding our hearts and minds and we may not even know what it is. But you know, here's, here's some possible examples. You know, there's family and there's country and there's work and there's church or you know, in religious organization, religious institution, that kind of thing. There are all kinds of things where you can sink your allegiance. <coughs> or, if you want to take it even one step further, on the things on which you would stake your life. So I had this wonderful experience in seminary, though I did not know what to make of it in the moment. Um, but a, I think I was a senior, and the person I was giving a ride to was a junior or first-year person. She was visually impaired, is visually impaired to the extent can't drive, can't really see much of anything. Um, and there she was in seminary, you know, getting ready to go be ordained and lead a congregation and all that stuff. And I just thought, oh my goodness, what, you know, incredible commitment is that? And we <coughs> started talking, I don't remember how, but started talking about that, about the commitment one makes to the thing that claims our allegiance. Um, and I, you know, was bumbling something about how 
gosh, it would be good to be a priest and it'd be better than my former job. You know, I mean, that <laughs> kind of foolishness. And she said, well, got to the point of saying, well, you know, really, I stake my life on this. And I just, that's always stuck with me from that conversation in the car. Here's this person with this incredible mountain to climb, climbing it because she had staked her life on this. So it's just good to think about where, you know, how do we do that? Where, do our, where does our allegiance go? <coughs> so in the church, um, we talk about that in terms of a creed or several creeds. So probably good to think about what that means. What's a creed? Um, there are different ways of looking at it, right? So it can be in a kind of a secular way, just a set of beliefs or principles or opinions or whatever that guide us. Um, a creed is another way of framing a religion, of course. You know, what's your creed? That kind of thing. Um, or it can be like we're going to see more or look at more tonight, a brief, uh, brief authoritative formula of religious belief. Um, something that kind of tries to boil down who we are and what we believe. Of course, that word in English comes from the Latin word credo. Uh, you, you may think, look, seeing what's going to come here, that I speak Latin. I do not. I can, I can take stuff off the Internet really well. <coughs> I do not speak Latin. But I do know that um, it, the, the word credo is, is I believe. It's, it's how that statement begins. So if you're singing, you know, Mozart's credo, it's, you know, the first, the first word you're proclaiming is, I believe. Um, but it isn't, I mean, so what does that mean? Because <laughs> believing in something means different things in different contexts and to different people. I mean, we believe with our heads, but we also trust, rely on, you know, commit ourselves and trust ourselves. I mean, all those things um, are shades of the meaning of credo in Latin. And if you go down deeper from that, okay, Latin didn't just pop up on the planet by itself. It came from someplace too. So credo comes in Latin as the first person singular of the verb to believe. And it comes from Indo-European, um, a, a compound occurred or curda, that kind of thing, which not surprisingly means to believe. But what's interesting here is where that comes from, which is a root in Indo-European curd, meaning heart. So like cardiology comes from that root. I think that's cool. <laughs> I think that's interesting because, well, at least, you know, with my biases, what that means is a creed is about what's in your heart maybe even more than it is what's in your head. And we are, we are so <sighs> rooted in <laughs> the enlightenment in our culture, you know? Mm -hmm. We're so formed intellectually by the notion that head is number one. <laughs> Thinking is what matters, Descartes would say. I think, therefore I am, not I trust or I feel or I work or I anything but I think that's you know the whole enlightenment project is about how important it is that we can think as autonomous actors and that good stuff okay not, not, not that that's bad or anything <coughs> but it's not exactly where faith would go um, you know St. Anselm long long time ago uh, 
framed the theological enterprise as believing so that I can understand something. The theology is faith seeking understanding. That it starts with believing something and then going, okay, what does that mean about God? <laughs> you got to start with a, a sense at least, even if you don't claim every last bit of it yourself, okay, that, that's, a, that's an enlightenment way of thinking about it anyway, you know, that it's our faith that we share, what am I going to do with that? How can I understand it more fully or more deeply or something? Um, so a, a creed, I think, is, is an example of us beginning in some trust, beginning with something as a, as, a, as a faith statement, and seeking to understand God better through it. Okay, so what are our creeds? So there's the first one, and the first in the sense of time, um, age. The Apostles' Creed... We don't, we don't actually know when the Apostle Creed, Apostles' Creed developed because, like all the rest of early church history, it developed. You know, it, there, nobody sat down, at least at this point in the story, nobody sat down and said, let's all write this out and, you know, come to a common understanding. That did happen the next century, but it hadn't happened yet by the 200s. But the thought is that it, you know, well, it did rise up in Rome, early 200s sometime. Um, it, it got named the Apostles' Creed by, you know, the late 300s or so because there was this <coughs> legend that, that, and it is a legend, that the 12 disciples had each contributed a thought. <laughs> so it was uh, the Apostles' Creed in that sense, which is a great story. Not probably accurate, but that's okay. It's a great story anyway. That's fine. Um, by the early Middle Ages, the church in the West had made that part of the baptismal rite, that if you were going to be baptized, if you were going to follow Jesus, these were things you needed to be able to proclaim, the, the claims of the creed, which we'll look at in a little bit. And it was also part of the daily office. So that's <coughs> not office in the sense that we think of the word office, mm -hmm. but office in the sense of work. So the daily, the daily work of the monks would have been praying, what was it, seven times? Seven times a day? I think it was seven times a day. And at least in several, or, well, at least in two of those, of those offices, of those services, um, they, said, they said the Apostles' Creed. Came to be kind of standardized and <laughs> helpful if you have a holy Roman Empire, you know, you can standardize things. And so Charlemagne was good at that, standardized lots of things, including use of the Apostles' Creed. And by the time the Reformation came to England and Henry VIII, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Henry VIII was out of the picture and they could um, make the, some, some changes in the liturgy and changes in church organization. Um, and Thomas Cranmer created, with a lot of help from other people, <coughs> edited the, the, the Latin uh, rites into the Book of Common Prayer. At that point, he kept the Apostles' Creed in the baptismal rite and in morning prayer and evening prayer, where it still lives today. And I think, and I'm probably wrong in saying this, that those may be the only places liturgically that we do the Apostles' Creed. I think, I think that's right. Anyway, somebody will prove me wrong. That's cool. But, <laughs> but it is a big part of the baptismal rite, and we'll see that, well, 
the, the reason we're framing this lesson in a sense, this session, the way we are, is because, you know, if you're going to, if you if you want to renew your vows, if you want to, you know, well, be baptized or be confirmed or be received into the church or, or reaffirm your baptismal covenant, you, you say the creed as part of that covenant that you make. It's sort of the, the well, not sort of, it is the heart element of a set of promises that are about heart and action. Well, this, this is the heart half of the creed that we proclaim. So that's the Apostles' Creed. The other creed we probably know about is the Nicene Creed, which is very similar to the Apostles' Creed, but there are some slight differences here and there. Um, not really tremendously important, I don't think. Um, but, but this came out of a particular historical moment. The Nicene Creed did, um, hence the name. <laughs> so it was put out by, developed by, and put out by the Council of Nicaea, the gathering of the bishops of the church once Christianity had become legal in the Roman Empire. And once Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire, it became clear that not everybody everywhere thought or practiced exactly the same thing because it's not like they could go on the internet and all get the same prayers, you know. And, and so the conflict in the Council of Nicaea was about Arianism. Anybody, you know, Anybody know what Arianism was? The, the, the claim, the, the, the Arianism became called a, a heresy. It was you know, named a heresy. Do you know, anybody know what the heresy was? Not that you should. The, the what, yeah. sorry? Jesus is not divine. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Arianism says Jesus was the best creature God ever made, but not God. And this, I mean, that sounds like, ooh, you know, Sent us to ring the bells and sound the alarms. That's a terrible thing, but that was you know what half or slightly less than half probably of the church was believing at that point. We just hadn't worked it all out yet. <coughs> I mean, heresy and orthodoxy are fancy names for who won the argument and who lost the argument. I mean, it's not like the devil came and said, "Well, you should be an Arian." You know, it's not <laughs> it's not not like that. But they did want to. Well, the bishops wanted to, to purge the Arians, at least the, the, the who would become the Orthodox bishops, um, wanted to, to get that point of view officially condemned. So that was the point of putting a creed together, was to say, no, this is what we believe. <laughs> and we're going to standardize that across, across the church. So that got um, revised a little bit and, and finalized uh, the late 300s, the Con Council of Constantinople. For, for most of us today, I bet this is true, the, the Nicene Creed, if we have a creed in our heads, <laughs> it's probably this one because it's what's used at Eucharist and anymore, at least in the Episcopal Church. Um, you know, since the 1979 prayer book, we do Eucharist every week, and so what we hear in public worship most often is this one, unless you like to pray the daily office. If you listen to or read morning or evening prayer on your own, Excuse me. You might actually have the Apostles' Creed in your head and stumble over the differences in the Nicene Creed, which I do, which is not great if you're leading worship. <laughs> um, but I, I stumble over the Nicene Creed because I kind of have more of the Apostles' Creed in my head. But um, the, the cool thing about the Nicene Creed is it's the most universal. It's used both 
in the Eastern and Western Church and a wonderful remnant or remembrance or something of the notion that we actually were one <laughs> at one point and maybe could be again. I don't have a slide for the third creed that you will find in the Book of Common Prayer. For extra credit, anybody know the third creed you will find in the Book of Common Prayer? The Athanasian. The Athanasian <laughs> Creed. Boom. Nice. Yeah. The Athanasian Creed is something you, you ought to look at at some point just because it's crazy and beautiful, I, I think. It's crazy and beautiful. It's, it's a poem. I mean, it's not, I, it's, it's about as non-linear Western orientation of your brain sort of uh, document as, as you can get. It, it, it goes like this in, in trying to say, you know, the Father is this but is not that, and the Son is this but is not that, and together they are this, and they are unified, and they are separate, and you're like, what? <laughs> but, but it's worth reading just because it, it tries to capture, like I say, in poetic language, something we can't capture with technical documentation. If we could, we'd have a manual, you know, for church or for discipleship, but we don't, at least in our tradition, <laughs> we don't really have that. I'm reading a short explanation, and even the explanation is hard to understand. <laughs> <laughs> of the Athanasian Creed? The affirmation of the Trinity in which all members of the Godhead are considered uncreated and co-eternal and of the same substance. That clear it up? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh. Yes, sorry. When you, when you have something to say, and please do have something to say, if you would use the microphone for the recording and for the folks watching online. Thank you, Jennifer, I'm sorry. So I thought it would be interesting, I think it's interesting, <laughs> and I'm imposing it on you, to go through the creed line by line and see what see if there are things that jump out at you or things maybe that don't jump out at you that should. <laughs> and I guess that's more where my bias would be. Um, well, I guess I don't need that. There we go. <laughs> so, the first line, the first claim, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now, before we start looking at what that actually claims, I think it's fascinating that the creed, you know, is a, is a statement of the Trinity. It's a statement of we understand God to be Father, Son, and Spirit, and that's sort of the framework we hang our hat on. That's all God the Father gets. <laughs> Every, everything else is about the Son and the Holy Spirit. I wonder why that might be. Any thought about why that might be? Why does God only get a single sentence? I mean, God the Father only get a single sentence. I don't actually know. I just my 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 gut is they all kind of agreed on that. I mean that that's um, a, a a good Jew could look at that and say yeah you bet you know I mean there's not maybe maybe the notion of God as creator wasn't as divisive as all the rest of it <laughs> and so of course we you know parse out the things that are difficult and just sort of say the things that we all agree on but. There's some interesting concepts I just in that one sentence, I think. I believe in God, the Father. Any, anybody want to reflect on that one? <laughs> it's pretty gendered, Zach says. Yes, that's right. It certainly is. Which would have made perfect sense to the people of the time 
2,000 years later, it's a, well, not quite 2,000 years later, it's, it's a little bumpier to be claiming God has gender, but either gender, any gender. So there's that. That's, that's worth kind of pausing about. How, how about the next word, almighty? Does that trip up anybody or make anybody think and wonder? I mean, there's a great tradition of theological reflection and conversation about almightiness. <laughs> is, is, is God actually almighty? That's one way of seeing it. It's not the only way of seeing it. Carol, what were you going to say? It makes me think about God changing his mind or mm. her mind, yeah. its mind, um, in the <laughs> Hebrew story. And um, that doesn't particularly say almighty to me. So so if God is... All-knowing, almighty, all-powerful, all yeah. that. Almighty at least certainly implies omniscience and omnipotence. Well, it is omnipotence, I guess. It, it implies omniscience, in which case, why would you be changing your mind if you're omniscient? Um, but there's also, I mean, and this opens a, a door you could spend a lot of time running down. What about the Odyssey? What about the notion of, you know, why do bad, why does God allow yeah. bad things to happen right. to the people that God loves? If God's almighty, how do you work that into your theodicy, your sense of explaining how God allows that to happen? That takes some, um, some, some folks in a, I think, a pretty dangerous direction where you have to try to reconcile the notion that God is almighty and can do anything but chooses not to help you. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, that's something to wrestle with. Um, what else is, uh, just, I mean, this is obvious, but creator. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. In, in the day this was put together, probably nobody would have given that, you know, two thoughts today. That, that, that's a bit of a divisive. radical, divisive <laughs> statement. You know, did God create? Boom! I mean, we like to reduce it to things like that. Six days, blah, 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 you know. Well, if God's creator, and we look at scientific evidence that tells us the universe is however many billions of years old and has come about over time, can we, recon can we reconcile those ideas? I mean, I, I, I can. I think it's cool to think about God creating over an extended period of time. But it, you know, it kind of makes you stop short, or can make you stop short. Anyway, okay, there's the claim about God the Father. Then we move into the section on the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So I believe in Jesus Christ, <coughs> his only Son, our Lord. Anything there? Grab you? Anything particularly interesting or makes you wonder? It's the only part. His only son, yeah? Yeah. And yet we, we say over and over again, we're all children of that, God. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. But of course, his only son capitalized having a different meaning in this context of begottenness from the Godhead. 
okay, but, but in English it says his only son, and that could certainly trip you up. How about the word Lord? What does that mean? What, what is it to be Lord? What do you think? Part of a medieval political milieu. Okay, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're if you're a lord of the manor, you're the, the the landowner, and you control the serfs. And of course, that's a little anachronistic to the 300s. But okay, still, yeah, there's that sense of landed power comes with the word lord. That isn't what this means, <laughs> but it's what we might hear. Absolutely, what we might hear. That in, in, in Greek, it'd be Kyrios, which was also the title of the emperor hmm. in Jesus' day. So when I look at that, and I don't think about this every time I say it or anything, but when I look at it, I, I actually look more at the word our than the word Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Kyrios, our emperor. Because the guy, the, the guy in Rome is, is not really it, right? I was kind of stumbling over the hour myself because it almost puts Jesus between us and God. It's, you know, Jesus is our Lord, but it makes two distinct. So, like, does that set up, like, Jesus reporting to God, then? Yeah, that kind that's of kind of what it seems like. Yeah. It doesn't seem like they're, it doesn't say they're both our lords, or just seems separative in the way it's written. Yeah, okay, okay. And, and we wouldn't want to claim that. We wouldn't want to claim Jesus was subordinate to God, to, to the Father. That would be, what, subordinationism, or whatever the, what's the name, what's the word for that heresy? Is that right? Anyway, there's a heresy for that. There's a heresy for everything. <laughs> yeah, right. But that H- however, the Jesus did express that he did not know certain things that God knew. True. So is there a sense that, that or that's part of their distinctiveness? Uh-huh, okay. And it also, yes, very good, and it depends on which gospel you're looking at. If you look at John, I bet you're not going to find anywhere where Jesus is going to say there's something the Father knows that I really don't. In John, Jesus is this, you know, direct representation of the Father on earth. But in the Synoptic Gospels, he's kind of figuring it out. <laughs> or at least, he, at least he's progressively revealing himself to the people around him. Not in the sense of, I'm, I'm it. So, this, we'll get to this later, that, that helps us actually in, in the, using the, the creeds as sort of the key to reading scripture. Because if you looked at John and you looked at Mark, you might get <laughs> reasonably very different uh, uh, senses of who Jesus was and how close to the Father he was. But we have this to help us say, well, this is the begotten one of the Father co-equal and co-eternal and all that good stuff. So we can kind of reconcile differences that scriptural text gives us even. Okay, I'm getting hung up, I'm sorry. (laughs) Next one. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. What do you think? Anything there 
worthy of conversation? Well, well that kind of does point back to the almightiness okay. of, of God because that is not a typical scenario in human life. <laughs> Typically not. <laughs> Being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and yeah, yeah. So and that's actually a great connection to make. So God can pretty much do what God wants to do, right? W which says interesting things about how we would see God as not bound by the things that bind us. So yeah, okay. Yeah, I th I, the the key word for me there is power. I mean, it ah. just. I think that all three of the first lines are kind of connected through that word power, because you have power, Lord, and Almighty, mm -hmm. and it kind of shows how they, we submit to Jesus as our emperor or king, king of kings, as in Lord, and then you have the Father Almighty, which implies power through the almightiness. Absolutely. So I think that it's all kind of connected there. Nice, nice, good job. I like that. I thought of the, um, I think it's interesting, you, first you have God, then it presents Jesus, then the Holy Spirit, but it says that the Holy Spirit pre-existed Jesus, which I think is interesting as far as like a timeline of, what would that be? I well, don't know. yeah, so. Comes last but existed before. Right, exactly. The, the what, say it again? He came last but existed, be it's like, yeah, it's, it's the third item but in order for Jesus to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit had to exist before Jesus. Right. His, his, in, his incarnation. Yeah. But it also raises the question, if, if these persons of the Trinity are co-equal and co-eternal, co-eternal means they've all been there all the time. Right. So, so, so the key is the incarnation. Yeah. Because Jesus existed before the incarnation. Right. So yeah. we would claim that, that Jesus exists before, the, the, the second person of the Trinity exists before Jesus is born in. Before his human. Yeah. Before his human form. Yeah. Right. According to some in Nicaea. <laughs> <laughs> he was born in Nicaea? No, no, no. I'm saying according, according to those oh. in Nicaea. Yes, according to those in Nicaea. Yeah. That's uh, the. It only makes sense if there's a pre-existent second person of the Trinity oh, to the complete that relationship. <laughs> well, but it's it, it's okay. It, according to some, it, roughly the roughly the same <laughs> idea. Attributed yes. to. <laughs> yes. Just to name the elephant in the living room, there, there's also the whole Virgin Mary part. Yeah, that was tricky. So why why would that why, why is that there? Start start with that question. Why why is that claim there that Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary as opposed to being born of Mary of Galilee? I go you do okay. Well, I mean, sex is a dirty thing, and <laughs> sin is inherited through human flesh, and we have to separate you know the incarnation of the Godhead from those things yeah. from, from human embodiment yeah, and yeah. sexuality and, and sin. Yeah. And sin, and sin, right. Although we hadn't gotten, you know, at this point, I don't think, gotten to, a, no, not with the Apostles' Creed, hadn't gotten to Augustine being very wrapped up in, you know, sin being transmitted like a disease, yeah. or a, a genetic trait, rather. Um, so, just really practically, another reason that Virgin Mary thing might be there <coughs> is about affirming the divinity of the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. If it actually were, you know, 
Fred down the street who was the father, <laughs> and that baby had been adopted by God as the king, which, parenthetically, <coughs> is how the people of Israel saw kingship, that the human, the very human being who was king <coughs> became adopted as divine mm -hmm. at coronation. That wouldn't have been a crazy thing to have claimed. This is a way crazier thing <laughs> to have claimed, actually, <coughs> because they would have seen kingship being, or, or sonship being ascribed, not being pre-existent. But this way it can be pre-existing. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. How did Pilate make it in the creed? Of all the people in the world. <laughs> Establishing historical accuracy. Ding. Mm. Establishing historical setting, accuracy. Um, that this is a real live thing that happened in a real live time and place. <coughs> it's not just that the second person of the Trinity was killed by oppressive humans. You know, he was he suffered under this particular ruler in this particular place. That's cool. How about the second line there? Was crucified, died, and was buried. Why is that there? Everything rises and falls on that. If there was no crucifixion and death well it didn't well the crucifixion was necessary because of the prophecies of how he would die but then the fact that th that he did in fact die dead was died. critical yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and that he did have a residence for a period of time in a, a a place that was known as a burial site yeah again kind of like Pilate, right it establishes historical <coughs> reality and it establishes humanity. Because yeah. one of the things, of course, that they're trying to work out in these years of the creeds and the councils of the early church is trying to come to some understanding of what is Jesus' nature. <coughs> that wasn't, as, wasn't dealt with as explicitly at Nicaea as it would be later, but <coughs> that was a big conundrum. Jesus is divine. Fully human, fully divine? How do those natures relate to each other? Are they intermingled? Do they kind of bump up against each other? <laughs> if you have to picture it in you know, concrete terms. Um, but, but this establishes, at least from a trust and faith sort of perspective, he was absolutely human, though not exclusively human. Okay. He descended to the dead. What does that mean? Do you think? Really, he died. Yeah, there's that. The, the <laughs> kind of the reaffirmation of yes. Yeah, really. And and went to wherever it is the dead people go. And and maybe more than that too. Um. You think about actually there's a great there's a great ancient homily that we always read at the Holy Saturday service. Um, Saturday morning after Good Friday, um, an anonymous homily, actually, that talks about the harrowing of hell, which is what the church would teach traditionally about what is happening on Holy Saturday. That while you know the body is lying in rest in the tomb, the second person of the Trinity is going to hell to liberate those 
held in the captivity of not having been born yet when Jesus was present on earth. Um, so it's the sense of, if, if I, what I hear in this is a theological claim that if you died before Jesus came, you're not necessarily out of luck. You can be liberated from death <coughs> even if, you know, you died centuries before the incarnation because Jesus took it upon himself to go and find them. Um, I was just thinking about the contrast here in the, well, the first uh, three lines. Um, you know, lordship, almighty, God, all that sort of thing. Mm. You know, king, uh, you name it, and suddenly he, suffering and dying. And, and I mean, this was something that, um, you know, if he was almighty God, he said, it just doesn't make any sense for right. to a lot of people in that time. In the context, it's a very radical claim. I mean, yes. um, that, uh, that he, d he, he was crucified. You know, he was a victim, all of that, rather, th even though he was our, he was Lord. So, yeah. Contradiction. Paradox. Big right? Paradox. Yeah. I, I may be incorrect, but it seems like somewhere years ago I heard that this is where Islam sort of split because they just saw Jesus as a, a prophet because if right. he was a Lord, a God, he could not die. Other people probably know more about Islam than I do, but I, uh, I, that's what I have heard too. I mean, that, that's a big dividing point. Um, not to mention the notion of God being human. I mean, that's kind of a big dividing point too. But um, yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great observation. Um, yeah, the, the, the paradox of it. The par to me, paradox is so absolutely central to Christianity. You can't have Christianity without paradox. I mean, we thrive on that. And so when traditions want to kind of cover up the paradox, it just cheapens the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's beautiful because there are these realities that don't jive in our experience, but do in the experience of God. Hmm, that's neat. Also, just really practically, the politician or the, the, the apologist in me says, that's a brilliant move to put that stuff in your statement of faith. Because um, otherwise it'd look like you're covering it up, covering something up, you know. We, we, don't, we don't just sort of put it under the carpet that the, the emperor was killed. We proclaim it. And if, if you didn't say it, it might well be a matter of, well, that's kind of undercutting all your claims, isn't it? <laughs> But no, it actually establishes them for us. Okay. Because <laughs> on the third day, he rose again. So I don't know if this is really an operative thing anymore so much. I mean, it is for some people. But when I was in seminary, it was a great big ditto, great big hairy deal um, to, to question the resurrection. Is the resurrection a symbolic statement? Is it that life renews, spring comes, you know, the flowers reappear on the earth, all that good stuff? And, and is the story of resurrection simply a metaphor for the rebirth of creation? Some people would say that. 
Orthodox Christianity actually would not say that. <laughs> Orthodox Christianity would say, no, that's a cool idea, but it isn't that. It's that he actually came back and ate fish and walked around and talked to people and, you know, was a person again. And that that promises for us, too. We'll get to that one in a second. Okay. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. I don't know what you think about the Ascension, the Doctrine of the Ascension, or the Feast of the Ascension. I think it's one of the most undervalued aspects of what we proclaim as Christians, because, at least to me, it isn't just that Jesus disappeared in order to make a great comeback later on. You know, he hasn't just scooted off stage in order to come back in the finale. You know, he's actually at work. The, the CEO has gone back to the, you know, executive suite and is running things. So seated at the right hand of the Father isn't just an honorific thing. It's this is who's exercising authority over creation. So go back to the, you know, our Lord, our, our, so our sovereign, our, our, our Caesar, our whatever, um, our emperor. That, that, that's where that authority is being exercised, at the right hand of the Father. And we sort of just gloss over the ascension, I think, because the numbers don't work, right? The, the scripture tells us the ascension happened 40 days after the resurrection. <coughs> 40 days after the resurrection always is Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst timing of a major feast ever. <laughs> really? I, yeah, I mean, the Ascension is always celebrated on Thursday because it's 40 days after Easter, and 40 days from Sunday falls on a Thursday, as it turns out. So we cheat at St. Andrews um, very intentionally, and we transfer the Feast of the Ascension to the next Sunday so that we can really celebrate it when people are there and get to preach about it and sing about it and all that good stuff. Probably the liturgical police are not so happy about that, but I like it better that way. Okay, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. What does that mean to you? Perhaps that we are not subject to judgment until that time. And, we all, we all, for, and that's the purpose of redemption is the fresh start, the mercies that are new every morning. Nice. Okay. So that we can kind of let go of judgment in the here and now. What, what, what else does that say to you? Oh, uh, yeah. Hi. Oh, right, is this working? Yeah. Okay. Hey, I do agree. I think it's like, uh, I mean, you will be judged, but we're going to give you a second chance in that um, we're all not perfect and we all like sin all, all the time right. without you knowing it. So, <laughs> so it's just like, it's okay to make mistakes. But it's the opportunity to be accountable and to fix those set of mistakes. So, like, accountability is coming. It just isn't nailing you right now. And I always, people really always forget that Jesus was not perfect. And he sinned. And he learned his lessons. And he, of course, you know the rest. <laughs> now, there's, that's a whole other class, actually. Is <laughs> does, did Jesus sin? Right? I heard you right saying that. Yeah. 
So, okay. This is, this is, this is why creedal statements are really interesting and useful because they make us go a little deeper than we normally would. Like, well, is that is that right? And where do you see it? And you know, it, that's it's a great conversation. But I know I I get caught by he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Um, back to the heroine of hell, that redemption and judgment is on the table for everybody, no matter when they're when they come into incarnate reality. Um, yeah, just just that. So anyway, maybe that's enough on that one. Um, then we come to the third section. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church. Wait a minute. <laughs> How do we make that turn? I believe in, you know, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. What What is, what do you make of that? The church that is unified in that they espouse these shared beliefs, perhaps. Yeah, so you're you're going to Catholicity, right? What does it mean to be a Catholic church? Is that the the the, the universal church, the sense of the church as one, right? Um, so you notice that's Catholic with a lowercase c. It always feels to me like the last parts of this are just like, yeah, oh yeah, that too. Uh, whoop! Almost <laughs> forgot the Holy Spirit, and don't forget about the church, and you know, and uh, yes. yeah. That that's kind of where I was headed. I mean, I I think it. I don't think that's probably right, but it does kind of sound that way. It does. It reads that way. Like, yeah. well, we got to get the church in here somewhere. So, right. well, okay, you maybe. I mean, you could see it that way, but uh, maybe also. <laughs> at least I hope this is true. The church is a pretty significant instrument of the Holy Spirit, at least on its best days. <laughs> Can you? Days, you know? th this is the whole reason I'm here tonight because I don't understand Holy Catholic Church. So, it, Catholic with a lowercase, a lower C, K C. Tell yeah. us what. Tell us again what that yeah. means. So that that word means. <clears throat> I mean, we we hear Catholic as a brand, right? right. Like Presbyterian or something, you know. But it actually means universal. So if something is Catholic, it's beyond our parochial interests. <laughs> um, it's, it's beyond our, our, the smallness of what we're concerned with. Um, it's beyond our divisions. It's beyond the ways we mess it up and exclude this person or that person. It's the sense that there is a church, um, that the church at its core is not divided. It, it's the, the true worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth, those comprise this unified Universal church. Universal unified church, yeah. Which images what's coming next in um, salvation history, you know, the, the, the vision in Revelation about the, the multitudes gathered at the heavenly altar worshiping together, that's that that's the Holy Catholic Church in print, <laughs> in in uh, in the story, so to speak. John, I hadn't really thought of it this way before, but is it is it possible that the Holy Catholic Church is kind of in a positive phrase that's defining what the Holy Spirit is? Kind of like Neil Doubt. Now that's a great Neil Doubt, the good skier from Aspen. You know. 
Su Susan Painter. Yeah, yeah. No, right. Susan Painter online kind of follows in that line of thought. She says the church is the manifestation of the spirit. So that's great. I love a good grammarian. Nicely done. It is so a comma. It, it is a comma. Yeah, although it's going to get yeah, go back to what you're yeah. saying in a minute because there are a bunch more too, right. but um, that maybe don't track that way. But this could absolutely track that way if you see the church as the primary manifestation of the Holy Spirit in incarnate reality. Yeah. Not probably that it is limited to that. I mean, if it's a direct, a positive or whatever, then it's, you know, the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Catholic Church. Well, probably the Holy Spirit's bigger than the, the church. But, but, but the church is our understanding of it or our experience of it or our manifestation of it on, on Earth. That's great. And, and perhaps in some different words, the Holy Spirit indwelling the individuals who comprise this Catholic Church. And you can go that way too. So you can either see it as the movement or um, the individuals representing the movement or embodying the movement. And both are true, I would say. Okay, so back to Zach's list of things we didn't toss in earlier. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Well, but this this isn't just a, t a toss in, I, I, I don't think. Um, none of them are, but this one really isn't. Because the communion of saints, you could also see, I don't know if it's exactly in a positive, a renaming, but, but it's a, a facet of the church. The, the communion of saints is these aren't people who were <laughs> these are people who are they're not right here but they're right here and so when we stand at the altar and at least in the more formal setting and say you know and so we join w with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven lauding and magnifying your glorious name the, the, the whole company of heaven is the, the communion of saints that these folks are worshiping right alongside us that what we're doing at the altar is joining in that that multitude of everybody at the heavenly throne. Just we're doing it in this location <laughs> while they're doing it in a more fully realized place or state or something. But that they're part of the Holy Catholic Church too. That universal in the sense of beyond time and space. I think that's fabulous. I love that. I love that, that we're connected with those who have been and those who will be. I mean, if you can imagine God's time being not linear, <laughs> so those who are still yet to come are also worshiping with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. The forgiveness of sins, which also you could see as a function of, I mean, it is a function of the church. It's not the... I'm not in trouble if I say this. I don't think it's the sole purview of the church. There are those who would say it probably is, <laughs> that only the church, only the guy with the collar and the, and the stole and with the right words can forgive sin. Interestingly, that actually is not what the Book of Common Prayer would say. Um, not that you would ever really go and look at it, but if you look at the rite of confession, the rite of reconciliation of the penitent, it, there is a form for doing that by people who are not ordained. The language is different, 
it's not I, you know, in the name of the church, I forgive you. It's not that. But you, someone who is not ordained can, can um, be a vessel, a vehicle for reconciliation of sin. That's cool. But I, th- I think, you know, if nothing else, it's, it's making the claim that the forgiveness of sin is an activity of the Holy Spirit. Ever been in the position where you either really needed to forgive somebody or really needed forgiveness? You know how hard that can be, and that maybe it's only God who's <laughs> really going to accomplish that, not not our poor power. Okay, the resurrection of the body. Ooh, how many people believe that? How many of us believe that? The resurrection of the body. I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'm just, <laughs> but I, th- I I guess I think in our culture. We don't believe that. <laughs> not the flesh. Well, not in the sense of the actual physical flesh. There you start getting into it, don't you? Right. Yeah. So, where where do you look to see what is going to be resurrected? What that's going to what that's actually going to be? There's somewhere I can't. I don't know the address, but there's a discussion of the glorified body. Yeah. First Corinthians. Yeah. First Corinthians 15. Spiritual bodies. What? <laughs> um. <laughs> Just to to say that, uh, remember that Jesus, after he rises, he is resurrected, he still has his wounds. He's still got all of his, all of the damage there. Absolutely. And he can, he eats fish and everything else like that, but he also walks through walls. Yes. Thanks. So. (laughs) That's a spiritual body. It's a quantum physics body. A quantum (laughs) physics body. Somebody who knows more about quantum physics than I do can affirm that, but. yeah, right. I would also like to make a comment back about the forgiveness of sins. That recently I've pondered that when Jesus made the appeal from the cross, he wasn't forgiving the sins of his torturers. Right. He was appealing to God because yeah, that's Father, probably something yeah. beyond what normal human yeah. can accomplish. Yeah. No, that's a great yeah, great paradigm. Right there, even Jesus is asking relatedness in the Godhead to do the work of forgiving because he can't? I don't know. That's a a really good question. Why doesn't he just forgive? (coughs) Okay, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So... How different is heaven from this life for you? What do you when you when we think about going to heaven or whatever, experiencing heaven? Is that a radical difference from the life we live now? Got a nodding of yes. Well, there are no tears in heaven. There's no cancer in heaven. There's no, it's utopia. But we don't get to have that here yet because we'll need to appreciate not having it there. It brings up the question for me of how are people changed by the transformation at the end? Mm -hmm. 
because I know people who would find themselves really challenged by the communion of saints if it involved all of the people that they disagree with. Yes. No, there's a gr- that's a great uh, way of way of asking the, the, the question or, or getting into the question. If, if if we're actually joining the company of saints and life continues, then that person that you don't really care for, you're stuck with for life everlasting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, unless you just st- st- uh, hang around in a different, you know, neighborhood of heaven, all, but we're all, all your s- eternal life than they do. Are, aren't we all stripped of our sin nature, though, at that point? So we're not dealing with the sin nature part of the person that we disagree with because we see them now the way that God sees them. Cool. So, no, that's, that's good. And, at least for me, it's still that person and still me you know, redeemed, stri- stripped of sin, all that, yes. But it's this, it's the life I am living, I, I continue to live as me. Is it a flesh or a spiritual resurrection? Well, so, back to Paul, I mean, it'd be a spiritual body. So make of that what you will. To to, to point about Jesus, I mean... Yeah. Yes, and. But it's like in a, on a different, obviously different plane. Yeah. But but Jesus didn't rise as somebody else. He rose as Jesus with all of his scars. You know, I, I feel like we will have all of our, we will, we will be ourselves. It's not, it's not like the scars disappear. The scars are healed. But it's still us, scarred. I think. What, what do you think? Super, I'm not super verse, right? But is, isn't the body seen as a vessel to the soul? A, 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 yeah, a, a ve- well, a vessel of the of the spirit. Yes. The the soul actually is or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, but it's yeah. an interesting question yeah. because the soul actually is not a not really a Jewish concept much at all. It's a Greek concept that got kind of folded into the system. <laughs> as Semantics. The went out. Right. But, well, <laughs> kind of semantics, but kind of not. I mean, because if the, the, the way of thinking that says flesh just holds the reality of the soul and flesh isn't really important or holy or, you know, it can lead you down some kind of dangerous paths to say, People don't really matter. Their souls are going to be okay. They'll be all right in the sweet by and by, which I know isn't what you're saying. I'm not. I'm not saying that. But um, <laughs> it, it can lead to this bifurcation that says all that really matters is your spirit. This life, eh? It's not really that big a deal. And I kind of think Jesus would say something different because <laughs> he really cared about what was happening to people in this life, you know. But just, just the. You know, those two very brief statements get you going in directions like that, which I think is fascinating and fabulous. Um, okay, we got to move on. So ju- just, when we've all been, we, we've, we've noted these things already, but just kind of to summarize, I guess, about, about the creed. The, 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 the creeds are not, you know, statements from the mountaintop that God handed to Moses and here we have divine revelation. These are reflections on our experience of divinity. 
our experience of God among us and our experience of scripture and our experience of one another and all that. It's also interesting that it's a communal statement. We say the creed together. We might say it by ourselves, too. I mean, that's fine. But in, in worship, we've decided it's important to say this as a body. So, so we're, even if we, <laughs> I think, even if a particular individual on a particular day has trouble with a particular claim, this is the faith of the church that we're part of. The, the church with a capital C, not the Episcopal Church. I think it's important for us because in, in our experience, Bibles are everywhere and we have multiple yeah, copies yeah, of them. Yeah. But when this was created, uh -huh. people, common people, did not have access to that body of work right. on a regular basis. So having something that was short and concise and easy to memorize nice. was important yeah. for the experience of daily life and, and attaining to those spiritual practices. And if you say it in worship over and over again, it becomes, you know, praying shapes believing. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, we talked about this before. It's kind of a guide to, to, to when scripture is not as clear as we might hope, you can look to the creed and say, well, if we think that the sun is preexistent, then that kind of trumps this other way of thinking about Jesus as being adopted as God's son or something like that. Um, Helps us get around heresy. <laughs> Helps us at least, at least ask the questions that get defined as heresy over time. And I love this. Um, something I read a long time ago. That, that described the creeds as the grammar of the faith. So grammar, you know, structures language. It's how, it's how, we, how we, it guides how we communicate. There are grammatical rules, especially among eighth grade English teachers. <laughs> you know, there are <laughs> grammatical rules you're supposed to follow. But we don't, necessarily. In fact, sometimes fabulous writers decide very intentionally to violate the rules of grammar to make a point, right? Or to say, thing, to say something in a way that really sticks with you. So grammar is there, but it also opens the door for you to say, well, what if? <laughs> or what, what if, what if, the syntax were rearranged, or what, you know, whatever you're doing with it, 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 it's, it's the, it's the framework for holding faith and trust in God, and I think for letting us kind of look at it like we've been doing tonight and mess around with it and wonder about it. So what, what else, what else about the creed do, that we haven't talked about? What else do you find important, or what do you find that trips you up? say anything about Jesus' life at any point. Well, yeah, it does. He died. Well, yeah, but that's his death. Oh, okay. But that, yeah, that's yeah, not his teaching, his... Right. His, yeah, 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 yeah. What right. did he do before the death? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's born, that. died. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's... It doesn't point. mention any humans other than Mary. And Pilate. And Pilate. Yeah, Pilate. Weirdly, that's <laughs> right. Yes, and if it did, what would that, why, why would that matter? I mean, what, make, what makes you raise that? Well, perhaps it was the one human who gave him his start and the one that gave him his end. <laughs> so, right, so if it's the 
birth and death version of Jesus' history. Yeah. But it is interesting. I mean, to both of those points, nowhere does it say he put together a group of followers whom he commissioned to take the good news to the ends of the earth. I mean, things you might have expected. It doesn't talk about his healing or his teaching. Right. or Yeah, yeah, not right. None of that. And I wonder if that's because in the day, or maybe partially because, well, we all know that. <laughs> What's at issue is who is he? What, what he did, we've got the story of what he did. The accounts may not all agree with each other, but we've got some accounts of what he did. But who is he? I mean, that's the question that's trying to answer, I think. Anyway. Yeah. You know, I don't think it came up so much that I heard in the Apostles' Creed about he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Mm -hmm. To me, that means behave yourself because you will be judged yeah. someday. So you, you may think you'll get away with something, but you will not. You will be judged. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that's setting out uh, some standards of behavior to try to treat your fellow man properly because if you don't, you're going to be judged. Yeah. Yeah, that there is accountability. I mean, right, just what you said. Um, and it's really easy to imagine ourselves as independent actors who can do whatever we want to. <laughs> you know, and that and the power would allow it. I mean, you can take it in the direction of who's in charge, right? Um, the, the one reigning in place of ascension at the right hand of the Father is the one who's actually getting to set the rules, <laughs> even if he seems not to be around right now. Yeah. But it will also be the judgment of one who knows everything, including the intent of your heart, which your fellow mm -hmm. man may not, mm -hmm. and, and what your options available at the time were. Yeah, and so judgment, it comes with a much broader perspective than we would typically think about judgment. Yeah, that's good stuff. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so that's the, the Apostles' Creed, I mean, it, this, it, this class is, you know, creed and covenants. The, the reason or the thing to, to, to move to at this point is, like I said before, the Apostles' Creed is the first half of this thing that we affirm when we decide that we want to name ourselves as followers of Jesus. The, at least in the, in the Episcopal tradition, the baptismal covenant. We, we make this covenant uh, when we are baptized or our, our uh, godparents make it for us when we're baptized as infants, and then we are doing that for ourselves at confirmation. And we do it actually every blessed time there is a baptism. All of us, you know, stand at that point. It, it, it may be about the little baby up there, but, but we all stand up together and affirm the baptismal covenant, both what we believe and what we promise to do. Um, and, th and that's, I, I, the reason I love the baptismal covenant is because it's this great combination of if, you, if your heart rests in God, if you trust in God in the ways that the creed would affirm, how do you live? What's the, what's the outcome? Because it isn't just about thinking. <laughs> and it isn't even just about feeling. It's about doing, too. Okay, so that begs the question, what is it to live in a covenant relationship, right? Um, and this is stuff that I'm 
probably know, I'm sure you know this, but without thinking about it too deeply, sometimes I think we imagine our relationship with God as a contract. You know, if I'm a good person, God will bless me. It'll all be okay in the end. If, if, you, if you're in a contract, you're in, you know, like I said, a voluntary agreement with legal obligations, and, and it protects the interests of the two parties. So if, if I am having my roof fixed, if the church is having any of the millions of things done that we have done at the church on a, any given day, you know, there are obligations for the contractor and there, and there are obligations for us. They, they actually have to come and fix the roof. It ha the water has to stop coming in, and, and we have to pay them <laughs> when we say we will. And if either party doesn't do that, the contract is null and void, right? You don't have to keep going. In fact, you can break up, and, and probably should, because the contract's not working for you. A covenant, instead, <laughs> on the other hand, is not about the individuals. I mean, a contract is about protecting the interest of the individuals, right? Making sure I'm okay and you're okay and we do this thing together in a way where we're both protected. A covenant, instead, is about the relationship. It's I'm signing on and you're signing on to something that's bigger than either of us. And it's really the relationship that, I mean, there are obligations in the relationship. There, there are implicit and explicit obligations in the relationship but the relationship actually matters more than the doing of the obligation. And so it's about mutual belonging and mutual responsibility. And, um, <laughs> and it also doesn't say this up here, but I think it's true, um, implicitly makes the assumption that it's going to be broken sometimes. You know? And that the covenant actually continues even when the parties, one of the parties breaks the agreement. That it, it has its own life. It has its own integrity. It's not just two people agreeing on something, it's creating something of its own, with its own life, of its own life force even, I'd say. Um, so you enter into a covenant kind of knowing it's going to be broken. And then what? So, where do you see covenants in normal life? Marriages. Marriages. That's a good one. That's maybe the most obvious example. I mean, the most clear example. Isn't, isn't like in most countries, marriage still a legal contract? It is both. It is here, yeah. too. Uh, I, I always say this, actually, in marriage prep. You know, in our, in our service of marriage, there's a time when I'm, like, wearing the cap of the state, and then I take off the state's cap, and I put on the church's cap, and yeah, it's it's both, absolutely both. But yeah, marriage is probably the best illustration of that. What about children? Ah, that's cool. Say 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 what you're thinking about that. Well, once you have birthed a child, you can't unbirth a <laughs> child. Yeah, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the most common would just be friendships. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't have to be the it doesn't have to have the legal aspect to it, right? That is really good. You can absolutely, and one would hope one would have covenantal friendships. 
just to add, some of you know this, I, I have this group of friends from seminary. Um, we, we talk a couple of times a month and we get together every year and we've done that for 22 years now. And if any of us, I mean, this hasn't happened yet, <laughs> but, but if one of us sort of said, you know, I'm done with you all, I don't know, I, I, I mean, of course somebody could divorce oneself from a relationship like that, but would they really ever be gone? Would that, would that bond ever really, would it vanish as if it were never there? We, we'd, we'd, lose, we'd miss that person, the, the one of the six of us who decided to leave. It'd, it'd be a piece of your heart gone, you know. I recently like got my heart broken by someone that I really cared about yeah. and I knew you know we, we did really well together and he just got with the wrong people that manipulated him and got him to like see me as a bad person even though I was helping him but even though like he did all these things against me I still care about him you know and I can't stop I don't know why and I just, I worry, and I see that his, the friends that he has now are are not good for him, make him, you know, he used to have, like, beautiful long hair, and he shaves it off all the time. He used to take care of his body, and now he doesn't, and it's it's just awful. Yeah. But, you know, if no one else notices, then he's never going to get help, so I, I have to just watch from a distance, just like any good friend, and hopefully, you know, he'll come around. And meanwhile, you're still, I mean, you're still in that relationship in a way, right? I mean, I'm hearing you say that. You're still in that relationship. Yeah, and who knows what it looks like down the road a little bit, but... It could take days, it could take a decade. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. If you care about your friends or your family, it, you could you could argue with your brother one year, and then 10 years later, you guys say, yeah, I love each other. It's just, yep. It just takes time. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So, I mean, that's a great, thank you, that's a great example of, you know, what's binding the parties together in a covenant isn't agreement, it's love. There may not be agreement, actually, at various points in the covenantal process. <laughs> there might be deep rupture, but if there's still love, there's still covenant. Thank you, that's great. Um, okay, so the, what we promise in this covenant, in addition to what we s say about what, how we trust God, what we believe in, that sort of thing, we, we also make these five promises uh, in our tradition. And very different denominations do this different ways, but th this is what I know. So th this, this is how the Episcopal Church frames it. Um, the first of those is we promise that we're going to continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. Wh what does that look like for those of you who have made this covenant? <laughs> what, what does that look like in your life? How do we do that? I'll keep hanging out with other Christians who want to learn more about the teaching and... and um, Praying with other Christians and being around together. Lovely. I have like the opposite. Okay. I invited someone who thought I thought was a pretty faithful person, but as soon as I gave him like my opinions of like faith, 
and how what things are going on around me. He basically was disinterested in the conversation and told me that we had differing opinions and me and you know and I'm like I, when I and what I saw was like you just you don't want to discuss. You just want someone to agree with you. And I told him immediately, like, we just need to stop the conversation because you're not hearing me anymore. I gave you a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, and you you said that you basically said that you don't want any of that knowledge. I don't. I just want you to believe what I believe, and that's it. So, which is very dangerous. No, that's great and real, very real. And, and as you're saying that, I'm, I'm looking at the phrase there about <coughs> the apostles teaching and fellowship. Interesting how that's paired. Because just teaching is one thing. Here's, here's what we should believe, or at least from one person says we should believe. But paired with that is fellowship. <laughs> Equivalently, sounds like to me, <laughs> the way the sentence is written, <coughs> you know, if somebody doesn't believe the right thing, you don't get to just kick them out. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. I was raised in a tradition that, that taught that salvation could be lost. Okay. So that was, you know, as a, as a young person, as I wrestled with that, uh, and some people separated from me because my views became different. Uh, but I began to think of it in a way of similar to marriage. To where God would never be the partner leaving. But if we left, he would always be there waiting for us to come back. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And probably we're supposed to image that, right? Probably yeah. we're supposed to follow that as a paradigm. I also, something somebody said a minute ago made me think of this. Um, I think that statement or that, that promise to live that way is true both in terms of official church life and in terms of unofficial church life. So imagine, you know, the breaking of the bread with capital B's. You know, we, we promise that we will continue in the practice of, of sharing Eucharist. But we also promise that we will continue in the practice of having dinner together because they're not that different. <laughs> one's, well, one's and a piece of the other. I think having dinner together is necessary, particularly when you don't see eye to eye with one of your fellow apostles. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And 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 though the Eucharist is healing, it isn't by itself magical. I mean, I suppose it can be. God can do anything. But but I I think God would like us to take the next step and have the cheeseburger as well together. <laughs> okay, second promise. Persevere in resisting evil, and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. What does that look like in real life? Or, I mean, in your life? I think it's the, the restoration of the inevitable breaking of our covenants with one another. There you go. The recognition that it's going to be we're going to have trouble with it at some point. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I haven't really thought about it in those terms, maybe explicitly, but it normalizes that. Putting, putting that promise in the baptismal covenant says, yeah, <laughs> it's going to happen, so what do you do about it? 
right? It's not, oh, it, you've sinned. It's, of course you've sinned. What are you going to do about it? I mean, for a lot of people now, I think addiction is the biggest one where they they fall into it, they get lost in it, and they have a hard time crawling out of it. But then they, once they do, they forget how much better it is <laughs> without yeah. Yeah. all those things. Yeah. yeah. The upside of my tradition was that I did develop a lot of muscle in resisting evil. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, also, going back to the first one, um, yeah, uh, I've experienced it with the body language, like when I was in Warrensburg, Missouri, like with the, some, some of the campus ministries, they were like some of the biggest hypocrites. They, they, would, try to, they would try to get me to like, oh, you need to be more open-minded towards Western white culture. But they, they, they get they shut down when I tell them about Cambodia, yeah, what happened. Come back the other side. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but like uh, they don't under, they don't seem to appreciate the suffering of the Khmer people, for example. It's just the hypocrisy. And then I think the second one is like um, I find it easier to like. I think uh, Christians should try to encourage a different kind of pride in terms of taking pride in that you're not perfect and that you can take pride in taking the opportunity to listen to where you went wrong and how you can rectify the situation. Because mm -hmm. I've, I've done that before. Yeah. And yeah. it's just like, uh, I take pride in myself because I know I made a mistake and I had the opportunity to fix the mistake instead of encouraging the other kind of pride where I can do whatever I want and right. no, have no consequence. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the satisfaction of having done the right thing. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. The what? The catharsis of repentance. Yes, the catharsis of repentance. <clears throat> okay, uh, because we're running late, just we'll run through the others. In proclaiming by word and example the good news of God in Christ. It isn't just standing up and reading the Bible on Sunday mornings, right? I mean, that's, yes, that's part. But also what we were talking about before about St. Francis, actually, is a great, you know, Word and deed, how you live, who you put yourself out there for, you know, opportunities all the time. And then th these, these last two, <coughs> which I think are, well, they're all hard. <coughs> these two are the hardest to me. <laughs> Seeking and serving Christ in all persons. <coughs> it's that all. Oh, and then loving your neighbor as yourself, just to make it harder. <laughs> so... There's that. And I, at least I kind of see it as if that's the micro, then the macro is do the same thing on the bigger scale. Strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being. If you see Christ in all persons, you have to respect the dignity of every human being. <laughs> every human being? Every, yeah, Everyone. except not, not these. Yeah, not, 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 not this guy, but yeah. It's just so hard and so good, right? Would you want to? Would you want to commit yourself to anything less? I mean, that's it's inspiring and incredibly aspirational. <laughs> okay, we got to go, but just some good <laughs> things to think about. If, if you were going to add, I think this is a good question. If you were going to add anything to the promises for how we would live our lives. Is, I mean, is there anything missing from that list? 
something for me around being willing to wrestle with this faith. Yeah. You know, it, it's not easy. And there's a, you talk about that, that paradox constantly within uh, a willingness to wrestle. Yeah, I'd back that one. Number six in the <laughs> revision of the prayer book. That's a, that's a good one. I like that. Saying it explicitly, because we do. I mean, we're all about that in this tradition. But good to say it out loud and, and to normalize it in the same kind of like, not that it's sinful, but kind of <laughs> in the same way as <coughs> normalizing sin. Okay, we, we, we got to go. I didn't mean to keep you late. Um, I just, I really appreciate your being here and participating this way. N next week is um, the, the, the session's about <sighs> worship and go, worship and go. So the connection between what we do do over there <laughs> and what we do the other six and a half days a week, um, how that forms